Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One with a very special episode of the Box and One podcast. 50, 50 episodes that we've done up to this point. Five, zero. This is the magic number and no better way to celebrate the occasion than my good friend, Ricky O'Donnell, SB Nation's finest, here to join us to talk about some of the younger players in the NBA. Ricky, uh, you're so nice. We had to have you twice. It's great to see you back here on the podcast. How are things with you, my friend? I'm good, man. I got to say it's an honor to be on the Boxing One. I subscribe to the Substack. It is, it blows my mind how much content you're able to produce for the Boxing One. Like, I am astounded at both the quality and the quantity of the coverage of the Boxing One in the newsletter, in the podcast. So to me, this is like a great honor to be on the podcast for the second, I think the second time I've been on it. Second time. Yes, so, uh, yeah, I mean, you're killing it, dude. And I appreciate all the coverage that you're giving your many fans. And many is a little bit of an overstatement there, but I, I do appreciate you saying that Ricky. And, and as a, I, I guess I'll call you a repeat offender here, the box and one podcast, uh, you know, you know, the drill with how we like to start off a little bit of our conversation just to get the juices flowing talking about hoops. So I've got a question standard to ask of all guests in a, in a new season here. It means new question for you, even though you've been on here before, you're not immune to escaping. So let me paint the picture for you and for all of our listeners out there of what the situation is going to be. 18 seconds to go. Your team is down four, Ricky. You got one timeout remaining. It's your ball inbounding in the full court. Do you instruct your team to go for a quick two and try to cut that deficit in half from four to two? Or are you telling your team to go for a three-pointer? So I wanted to give like a nuanced answer here and say that it's mostly about personnel. And in my head while I was going through this, I was like, what if you're 2021 Tennessee and you're a team that just like locks down defensively, that's why you're good. Uh, they did not have much shooting no. on that team. And I'm like, maybe you draw something up for Keon or Jaden Springer to go to the basket and you try to get the quick two. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, nah, draw something up for Viscovi and just have him go for three, even though that team couldn't shoot at all. But like they had a couple guys who could kind of shoot. And I think you got to go for the three. Uh, I sort of understand the logic of the quick two. But at the end of the game, at the end of the day, like you need the most points possible to close the gap. And you sort of just want to like eliminate the margin for error, in my opinion. And I think that like even if you have a poor shooting team, you'll probably have a couple designated sharpshooters. And you just got to go for three, I think, regardless well, it, of the team personnel. Yeah. And part of it to me is that it, especially if you're a poor shooting team and this is one of your last timeouts to really control the opportunity, this is your chance as a coach to try to draw up as clean, as wide open, as good of a look for your one shooter that you may be able to find. So uh, it, certainly there's a lot of nuance to sort through in any of these situational uh, you know, moments. But at, at the end of the day, I, I think that I have been really shifted over the last several years to be anti-quick too. So I'm kind of with you on this one here. Take the three if you can. Ricky and I are joining uh, the podcast here essentially on New Year's Eve. You know, the NBA action is, is really starting tomorrow. And while Ricky and I both did, you know, tend to face the draft a little bit more in terms of what we focus on coverage-wise, 
we both follow the NBA. We both cover the NBA, and Ricky has done some great work in, in breaking down just you know best players at each position uh, over the last several weeks. So if you haven't seen any of those, go check those out over on SB Nation. And what we're really going to focus on here tonight is the combination of all of the things that we cover. The you know the youngest players in the NBA, so to speak, those who are rookies and entering their second year that we think are either bound for breakout seasons, uh, have a lot to prove, for example, and might be guys that are, are even starting to get on the hot seat in terms of their, their next contract, whatever the, the case may be. So before we get to that point, I know I just set everything up for us to tee it off and keep running, but we've also already been a few games into this 2023 NBA draft class cycle. And, and, and Ricky, are there any initial thoughts or takeaways on either uh, you know, Thompson twins, Victor Wembanyama, Scoot Henderson, the depth of the class, what we've seen thus far, where are you at on, on where this 2023 class stacks up with the last couple that we've seen? For sure. I think when people talk about the strength of a draft class, they normally talk about, is there someone at the top who's such a no brainer that even a massive idiot could get the pick correct if they were to land number one overall. And I think this is the ultimate draft in that regard, having Victor Wembanyama. An obvious number one overall pick. I wrote a long column on him, breaking down some of his tape. Uh, I published it the day before the 2022 draft. And in that column, I wrote that he was the best prospect since LeBron James. And that the last person to enter the NBA with this much size, fluidity, touch, and athleticism was Lou Alcindor when he was at UCLA. And in the months after that column, I thought, what am I doing? Why did I write? <laughs> like, no one's going to remember that you said that anyway, if he does end up being one of the greatest players of all time. Yeah. And he's 18 years old. It's just like too much pressure to put on the kid. Right. And I still do believe that I probably shouldn't have written all that. But with that being said, he goes to Vegas mm. and he yeah. just puts on a full display of his truly historic talent. And I thought, eh. Maybe I was right. Maybe he really is that good. So I think Wembenyama, you know, my comparison for Wembenyama is Otani. Yeah. I know it's like two different sports and stuff, but with Otani, it's like, all right, like, yeah, let's imagine a guy who is a dominant starting pitcher throwing gas and can also hit 40 home runs a year. Okay, that guy could never exist, but you can create him in your head. And that's kind of what I think about Wembenyama too. It's like, all right, he's a seven-five guy who rips threes, who dunks everything around the rim, and can put a lid defensively on the basket with his shot blocking. Uh, and I do think there's like a big difference between like having all these flashy skills and like truly impacting winning to like the greatest degree possible. So that'll that's what's going to be interesting about Wembenyama. It's like. It's a team game, first of all. He's likely to go into a pretty bad situation. If he goes to the Spurs or the Jazz in particular, I would say that those teams don't really have any true building blocks yet. We'll see yep. about the Spurs, yep. I guess. And like, can you imagine a better frontcourt partner for Victor Wembanyama than Jarrett Vanderbilt? I mean, that would just be like, to me, that's a perfect match. Yeah. But anyways, uh, Wembanyama is just... It's just like, how does this guy exist? And we'll see if he can truly impact winning at that grade of a level eventually. Uh, but he's the real deal. He lives up to the hype. 
And I do believe, so I don't know how old you are, Adam, but I remembered watching LeBron as a prospect. LeBron was two years older than me. So I remember watching LeBron versus Carmelo because I was a nerd from the time I was, you know, a teenager. And Carmelo was at Oak Hill. LeBron, obviously, at St. Vincent, St. Mary's. They played on ESPN. I believe going into LeBron's junior year and Melo was a senior, right? Obviously, they were in the same draft. Melo played Syracuse. Yep, yep. Uh, I would say Wembenyama would go ahead of LeBron. I think Wembenyama would go number one in any draft in NBA history. That's my hot take that I'm just throwing out here on there. And obviously, feel free to disagree. But he's seven five. <laughs> he's a really good shooter. I do have like a few questions about how he translates to the NBA, sure. even beyond his thin frame. Yeah, I think his defensive technique could use quite a bit of work. Mm-hmm. I think like even beyond the thin frame, just having a high center of gravity. Like if you're that big in that fluid, shouldn't you get like easier buckets? Like some of his buckets are like so tough. It's like, dude, you're seven five. Yeah. Like, just score easier than you are. With that being said, his total package of size, fluidity, skill, touch, all that jazz. I think he goes number one in any draft in league history. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so Sam, I'm just yeah. throwing that out there. Well, Sam Vicini and I were talking about this last night, actually, as we were recording the Game Theory podcast, and and how much of a toss up it was. Like, I was. 11 when LeBron was drafted. I'm 30 right now. Um, so like, I don't have that clear memories of what he would look like in high school. I know I watched a couple of the games on ESPN. I remember all the hype around him, but I don't have the bullet points of skill, athleticism, just how good he was from watching his tape. Um, but I don't think it's insane to have this conversation as I think some people who haven't watched enough Victor Wembanyama might be thinking this is just overreacting to a couple games in Las Vegas. Like, believe me, this is not overreacting to a couple games in Las Vegas. This is based on the totality of what he's shown, just how rare what he brings to the table really is. So I don't know about you, but I've been just thoroughly impressed by Scoot Henderson too. And I think that that adds a different prize to the top of this draft class with it. So here's my question for you. Let's say... I'm trying to think of like a good place to put this pin. All right. Let's say from 2016. Okay. How many of those drafts from 2016 to the present does Scoot Henderson go number one? in? So 16 was Ben Simmons. Simmons. 17 was Markel Fultz. 18 was Aiton. Yep. 19 was Zion. 20 was Anthony Edwards. This is all off the top of my head. Yep. Yep. 21 21 was Cade. 22 is Paolo. Yep. I think that Scoot Henderson goes number one in every year except for 2019 with Zion. And I would say 2021 with Cade. I think it would be, I think Cade would have the slight edge for me. And it's, one of those things where it's hard for me to say that he wouldn't go number one in 2018. Like he's definitely better than Aiton in my eyes, but I also thought Luka Doncic was at the time. So yeah, hard to, hard to really say, but I think probably t- at least two drafts 
over the last seven so, years. But you just said five of the last seven yep. he would have went number one in. So, I mean, that right there just sort of shows what kind of monster prospect he is. Yep. I don't disagree really at all. I was going to write a column at SB Nation last year that he would have went number one in 2022 if he was eligible. And I was a huge Palo guy, as we talked about on the yep. last time I was on this podcast. Yep. But, uh, I mean, Scoot just has like that level of athleticism mm -hmm. that really draws NBA evaluators in. It like sort of is the ultimate equalizer. Like Paolo is huge, 6'10", 250. But like what's holding Apollo back is he's just like not that fast. He just doesn't have like that elite yeah. burst. Yep. That, you know, if Paolo had LeBron's athleticism or even Ben Simmons' athleticism, I think we would be talking about him like he was an all-time great prospect. But he just doesn't. Yeah, yeah. he's, he's but, smooth, but he's not quick twitch in a lot of ways. Yeah, but Scoot is just the ultimate quick twitch prospect. And it's interesting because I think you tweeted this out about like guards under 6'5". Mm -hmm. Right. This was you a couple days ago. Yep. And you're like, you either need to be point A, point B, point C or a superstar. And it's kind of funny because that last one is a bit like, all right, well, like you could just always say, like, I could say Jarrett Culver, <laughs> you know, yep. he's going to be a superstar. So like that is sort of like the ace up your sleeve, I guess, that you can always go back to if you just truly believe in a guy. But Scoot just has superstar written all over him. Yeah. He's just like every... Like, you know, when we were, like, growing up, like, you thought of, like, the traits you want in a point guard, and he just embodies all of those traits yep. in, like, a mid-2000s point guard. Yeah. So how does that player translate to 2030, which is basically what we're talking about when you're drafting an 18-year-old? And we don't know how the game is going to continue to evolve, but we do know that getting to the rim will always be super important. What he showed me as a facilitator... Yep. I thought was really impressive and I can't wait to watch the rest of the games. So I'm living in Des Moines for a year because my girlfriend got a job out here and there's, nice. I've never lived anywhere outside of Chicago. Okay. In life. But we do, there is a, the Timberwolves G League yep. teams here. Yep. Yeah, and I was so them. disappointed that the Ignite are not coming to Des Moines <laughs> this year because I would love to see Scoot up close and personal. I figure is PJ Dozier Gonna be on the Wolves G League team. I feel like he might be. Am I right about yeah. this? I'm well, just throwing it out there. Yeah. The point is, maybe I'll be able to watch some decent basketball, even though I'm not living in an NBA city for the first time in my life. But I wish I could have gotten to see Scoot because he just seems like one of those guys where if you see him up close, it's just like you know the. I remember like the old the old school scouts when they would watch D Rose back in the day, mm -hmm. or even like further when I was really young, Baron Davis. Baron Davis, yeah. Or two names that'll come up with Scoot. We're just like so blown away at seeing the way those guys move up close and in person. And I think Scoot has all that. He will probably end up being a better shooter than Rose or Baron Davis ever were just because he's coming up in this era. Mm -hmm. And it's such a point of emphasis in terms of his development there. It wasn't for guys like John Wall or D Rose. Mm -hmm. So I think Scoot's going to be awesome. Whoever gets a number two pick, you're going to feel like you got the number one pick. I think. Uh, and then beyond that, so I was at the McDonald's game and I was at some of the Jordan brand classic practices. I would say I kind of want to see it with the current group of college kids. Hmm. Like I love Jarris. I liked Cam Whitmore. Yep. But I think like overall this college group, a little weaker than some previous years. Maybe I'm wrong. 
We'll see. But it's like, I just sort of want to see it from the current crop of college freshmen. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sure, like, is Nick Young going to be Jordan Poole 2.0? Is Cam Whitmore going to be, like, you know, on the floor, Miles Bridges, but maybe, like, more explosive and stronger? Mm -hmm. There's some, like, easy comparisons you can make for some guys, but uh, I would say I'm mostly unsold on the college freshmen. Okay. Okay. But well, have an open mind, like always, and like let's yeah. see how the top ten shakes out. Yeah, I think there are only a couple guys that profile as high level scorers, which makes it a little bit harder to know. Like, are the young guys going to show either enough progress as a scorer or impact in so many other ways that solidly puts them in a top ten, a, even a top seven type of position? So, definitely an, an interesting class in a lot of regards, but definitely time to be able to flesh out all this stuff too, because we haven't seen what they look like on a college court yet. The moral of the story is Scoot and Vic are just something special on their own. No, no doubt about that. And, and Ricky, now we got to take the, the context of looking at this 2023 class and spin it back to the last two that we've had here. Let's start with the most recent NBA draft 2022 and a bunch of rookies, you know, based on preseason, based on summer league, the opportunity that they have on their current teams. We want to look into some of these rookies that we expect to really dive in uh, their rookie season and just make it a, a really strong impact at the NBA level. I know we mentioned Paolo Bancaro. He's the number one overall pick in last year's draft and is probably going to be saddled with a top two creation role for the Orlando Magic. I'm pretty optimistic that they're going to be a, a better than advertised type of team this year. Pretty solid on the offensive end of the floor. Still a little bit to work through with as many young guys as they have. Uh, what's your overall take on Paolo and what we should expect from him year one? Yeah, it's going to be interesting because the Magic don't really have any shooting, right? right, right. Like, I think that's why everyone thought they were going to take Jabari was because you just look at the team and like their biggest need is shooting. Mm-hmm. But really, your biggest need, if you don't have a star creator, is like getting a creator. I would say that yep. for every team. Yep, agree. So it is going to be a, maybe a tough situation for Paolo coming into it, though, because it's like, who's really going to space the floor around him? Like, Cole Anthony kind of should be that guy, but like, how good's Cole Anthony off the catch? I don't know his catch and shoot numbers off the top of my head. I think his three-point percentage was like, Pretty underwhelming last year. I want to say it was like 33 or something. Again, off the top of my head, I might be wrong. Uh, Franz can play off the ball for sure, but like what makes Franz good is like on the ball juice, I think. Yep. And just like, you know, the totality of his skills at that size. Wendell Carter, people think he can shoot. Maybe he can shoot since he left Chicago, but like I'm still a little skeptical. His pre-draft shooting projection never fully blossomed, in my opinion. But he got better last year in Orlando. He's a good player. Yes, he is. Very good. All right, then you got Bamba. Like, who's the best shooter on this team? Chumo Kiki? Who's spacing the floor around Paolo? Yeah. My point is that Orlando needs some shooting. If Orlando gets Wembenyama, it's almost like... It's almost bad because you don't want him to be reduced to a floor spacer, which he wouldn't. He'd be the star. Everyone else would have to fit in. You'd trade Paolo. Who cares at that point? I mean, yeah. when Miami, he just like blows everything up. But I guess like if I'm thinking about Orlando moving forward, their biggest point of emphasis should be adding shooting. And in Paolo's rookie year, I just wonder like they're basically going to have to 
I'm thinking of the scene in Beauty and the Beast when they're like breaking down the doors with the big battering ram in the castle or whatever. I haven't seen Beauty yeah. and the Beast in 30 years, probably. <laughs> but that's what they're going to have to do offensively is just like try to play over the top of people and play through people because I don't think they're going to be able to manufacture the spacing given their lack of shooting. And like when yeah. Foltz is fully integrated into the mix, Foltz is pretty dazzling with the ball in his hands. But it's like, okay, now you got Paolo and Franz and Wendell Carter spacing for Fultz. Like, that's not really great either. Right. We haven't even talked about Jonathan Isaac. Or Jalen Suggs. Yeah. Or Jalen Suggs, who again, like, can he shoot? He's a good, but uh, he couldn't shoot at all last year. No. Suggs. So I think it's going to be interesting. Paolo, I wouldn't say free money to win rookie of the year, even though I think he's the most talented rookie, just because I'm a bit worried about the spacing. But yep. he's going to be really good. He's going to create the most highlights where he's like going between his legs four times and then hitting a 20 footer. And you're like, damn, this guy's good. He's going to do that more than any rookie, I think, especially since Chet's out. Yeah. Uh, probably the favorite to win rookie of the year. Cause I agree with you with the magic. I think they're over under 26 and a half. They'll win more than that. Yeah. Uh, him and Franz together. So fun. Just like two, six, 10 guys who can like dribble and pass like that. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll see. Like, I think the best is in front of Paolo, and I do think his game's NBA ready. But not sure the situation in Orlando is super conducive to him being the best version of himself from the jump. Totally agree with that phrasing. And, and in thinking about you know front runners for Rookie of the Year or maybe some dark horse candidates, like I I'll be honest, I don't see Jabari Smith taking home those honors. I don't think he gets enough raw volume reps in, in Houston, and, and there's just a couple of concerns for me about the efficiency that he's going to have finishing on the interior. Chet Holmgren's out for the year. Like the big three guys that we talked about, to me it's Paolo, and you're going to look lower than that to try to find somebody who's a rookie of the year candidate. I've got one dark horse that I'll throw out there, and it's Benedict Matherin at Indiana. Yeah. Um, the right kind of combination of opportunity meets preparation and just how good and, and ready he is to make an impact. He looked great during the preseason. We know his athleticism is going to blend in and even stand out on an NBA floor from day one. He spaces the floor effectively as a catch and shoot guy next to Tyrese Halliburton. So I think he'll get open looks. I like where uh, Matherin is headed right now. Yeah. Now he was someone who I really liked as a freshman as like a mid first round type guy. And as a sophomore, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Like, we're talking about this guy, like, locked to be top 10. And I was a little lower on him. I think on my big board, I had him, like, 11 or 12. And part of the reason I had that was because I thought he looked a little small. Like, him and A.J. Griffin were listed at the same size. I'm like, no, there's just no way this is true. A.J. Griffin can, like, bench press three Benedict Mathrams. <laughs> but... Watching Summer League and the preseason, Matherin dominated both those. Yeah. I mean, he was sick in both settings. He also just looks bigger. So now I'm thinking, like, is the Pac-12 camera angle too high? And did it really, <laughs> like, you know, they measured him in the combine. I think he measured at about 6'6". Am I right? Yeah. Was he taller right. than 6'6"? Six, six? I don't because think so. Arizona listed him as 6'7". I'm like, there's no way this guy's 6'7". He just didn't look like it. But I'm probably an idiot. And I blame the Pac-12 camera angle. And Matherin looks like 
even if he's in like a scorer role, let's say a la Tyler Hero, all right, like he's more athletic than a lot of the guys who go into that role. And he's just as good or maybe even better as a shooter. So I worry about him like on the ball creation stuff, but you got Ty Halliburton next to you right. who is a really good fit next to him. I, I think on both ends of the floor because Halliburton, while defensively, he's not really like a point of attack menace. He's just like super so smart, smart yeah. instinctual, just like knows where to be and will just like totally help out someone like Matherin. So I think Matherin could be poised for a big year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like they're going to tank probably and be bad, but Matherin's going to be on the floor the whole season. He's probably going to put up really impressive numbers, I would think. Yeah. My big question about him long term is like, you know, how much does his skill set contribute to winning at a high level? But like, I guess my question with him really is on the defensive end. Like, is he going to be yeah. an above average defensive wing? I don't know. I was skeptical. Maybe I'm totally wrong. He's looked phenomenal in both summer league and preseason. So I think Matherin, very good candidate for rookie of the year. Yeah, he's got tools in a lot of regards. And I, I want to see him clean up his polish as, as a creator. Like he's shown some flashes as the season went on at Arizona. He's looked good so far in summer league and preseason. But when the lights really come on from you know October 18th onward, that's when it really counts. Where are you, Ricky, on Keegan Murray and kind of his fit and impact as a rookie in Sacramento? Hated the pick. Thought they should have <laughs> taken Ivy because I just thought Ivy was so much better in a vacuum. But again, crushed it in summer league. Looks yep. really good in the preseason. His fit just makes so much sense there, which is, I think, why they took him. And I was so opposed to that. I'm like, you're the Kings. You need the best player. You don't need the best fit. But, I mean, like, maybe the Kings, you know – for the Sacramento Kings to think about winning the championship is just like such a ridiculous idea. <laughs> you know, like we think that a bad team should think about building towards a championship. But when you're the Sacramento Kings, if you could be the five seed, you might as well throw a parade. Yeah. So with Fox, with Sabonis, with Barnes, I love, I, I think I underrated how happy it would make me to see Malik Monk and De'Aaron Fox on the same NBA team. Yeah. That just makes that makes me so happy to see those two Kentucky guys back together again. And in that context, I think Keegan's a great fit. I think potentially I was too low on his ceiling overall because probably like the best, the best indicator for being a good NBA player, being good in the future. I think my boy, Brian Schroeder said this, Brian J draft on Twitter. Yep. Yep. It's just like being a good play. It's like the best indicator for being good in the future. Yeah. And Keegan was really good. He did really punish the lower level competition, I feel like. But like mm -hmm. he also just crushed the Big Ten tournament and was like generally very good in every step. So Keegan, absolutely rookie of the year contender. Uh, we'll see what his ultimate ceiling is. I mean, I would still take Ivy over him. Yeah, I just like yeah. Ivy a lot, but also like Keegan's a lot safer than Ivy. I would say, I'd say Keegan is a higher floor. Ivy is a higher ceiling. Yeah, and and Ivy. I mean, it's going to depend on how he and Cade Cunningham flush out their fit together, and I don't think that that's something that gets done his rookie season. So I wouldn't sure. put Ivy pretty strongly in a, or any rookie of the year conversation. Not a breakout guy from year one, but like what I value with Ivy is, I think he's got skill he's got the ability to play in ball screens with some craft he's obviously long for a guard 
but that first step is blazingly quick and there's Baja nothing blast. Is yeah there, Baja blast there is nothing more impactful to me than just having a first step that puts the fear of god in help defenders because it helps open everybody up on the offensive end of the floor so I'm I'm an Ivy guy there. I'm I'm right there with you. But. Yeah, I love Ivy, but I just think like this year, Keegan probably the the better bet to win Rookie of the Year for sure yeah. over Ivy. And you know Sacramento, you got to get it right sometimes. You know, like the old broken clock is right twice a day phrase. That's got to factor in for the Kings eventually. Like they got Boogie Cousins. What since then they just like haven't really made a good pick. So yeah, maybe they're due. They're due. They're definitely due. Well, look, those are those are the th- guys that got drafted in the top six right there. I think we could spend some time going on a few more guys in the later parts of the top ten. Not sure we need to do that. Like Dyson Daniels, shout out to him. Looked really solid here in the preseason. But, Ricky, are there any other guys outside of the top ten or even outside of the lottery, not sure if there's a spot in either, that you would see as being – you know, prime candidate to have a really, really strong rookie season. Well, let's talk about your boy Jaden I or Jaden Hardy, I'm sorry, who you love so much, went in the second round. My boy. Uh without Brunson there, should be a pretty big opportunity for a scoring guard in Dallas. You got Luca there to take all the decision making opportunities off your plate. I love the fit for Jaden Hardy. I think he's gonna be really good. And then Tari Eason it just seems so obvious. Like, how did he f- fall to 17? Yeah. And I know you weren't the biggest Eason guy. I loved your Tari Eason video. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like Eason, <laughs> I don't even know how to say it without sounding like an idiot, but like, he just has the will to win. <laughs> yeah. Like, he just like gets the ball and dunks the ball and takes the ball away from you. And it's not going to be pretty but generally probably going to be pretty effective because he's huge and he's fast and he's pretty skilled. Yeah. So I think Eason's probably set up for a big year, but I think the early reports are that Eason might not even be in the rotation, which yeah, seems like madness to me. Like I would think he, he might be their best player. He like, I like, it. I like Jalen for sure, but like, it's, they're just like totally different players. And I think Tari should sort of compliment him. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Hardy, Eason. I think those will be two more, two more to watch. Yeah, uh, Eason. You know, for me, how I describe it is like he's got that motherfucker in him. Like there's yeah. there's a little bit of that to him. Of like it, I guess it's an intangible. It kind of comes out in just how frustrated he seems to play and like take out all of his anguish on the rim at times or on a, a you know opposing players by just ripping the ball out of their hands. Like he's. He's definitely a really toolsy, interesting player that has pieced it together for Houston a little bit quicker than I thought. We'll see if that translates to regular season success. One more guy that I want to kind of look at here is Jalen Williams of Oklahoma City. Uh, I have really turned into a really big Jalen Williams fan over the last several months. I thought he's looked really solid with Oklahoma City. It's just going to be about what reps are there for him. He looks good with the ball in his hand. But, you know, there's Shea Gilgis-Alexander, there's Josh Giddy. Like, how many reps really are there for a guy like Williams to continue to to play that type of role in the regular season, I think remains to be seen. I do like his ability to space the floor, but, um, you know, it, it's always going to come down to, I think, if you're going to be really impressive, 
I want to see the combination of things that you can do. And reducing Jalen Williams just to a spot-up role doesn't do justice to the type of basketball player he can be. Yeah. He can play off the ball pretty well, though, I think. He like can, He can. You know, we'll see. Like I don't, I don't have numbers in front of me, like how good he was on the catch versus on the pull-up. But he shoots an effortless ball. Yeah. I saw him at the combine, and he's just so damn long and such a good shooter and very comfortable with the ball in his hands. What was holding me back on him is I feel like he's really, really slow. Like, I remember watching Denzel Valentine on the Bulls, and yeah. I'm, like, I love Denzel as a college player. He's another guy, big wingspan, comfortable with the ball in his hands, triple-double machine, veteran college player. But, like, in thinking why he failed in the NBA, well, first of all, he just had a terrible feel for the game, to be honest. If you watched his NBA career, it didn't really show up at Michigan State, but the NBA, he would just do some ridiculous stuff all the time. And But he was also, like, really limited athletically. He had injury issues, too, after he got drafted. He had, like, knee problems and stuff. So I guess, like, that's the thing. Like, where's the bar for NBA wing athleticism? And, like, can you be below the bar and still be good? Now, maybe Jalen Williams is, like, at the bar or above the bar. And me watching him in the combine when I'm thinking he's slow, like, what do I know? I'm just some guy. Like, maybe he's a perfectly good athlete. But he also went to Santa Clara and played three years there. So, yeah. like, there's a reason he wasn't at UCLA sure. or at Duke is kind of how I look at it. But, yeah, I mean, he's huge, so long, effortless three-point shot. Uh, it's funny, like, watching him shoot, he, like, barely jumps. Yeah. It's just, like, just very, like, fluid motion. You wouldn't think that as a 7'3 wingspan guy or whatever he is, but, you know, it looks like a relatively compact shot given how long he is. Uh, really excited for him. And uh, Jang looks good, too. Yeah, he does. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's there's potential brewing in Oklahoma City. Uh, yeah. And an, another year the tank moves on for, for Sam Presti. So we'll, we'll kind of check back in on everybody in about like 14 months, 12 months, see who they have and kind of take it from there. But Ricky, let's pivot now to the second year pros. Uh, the guys who were drafted in 2021 already have a year of NBA experience under their belt. And I want to divide this into kind of two categories. Those who we think are ready to take a major step forward this year. So, you know, we can certainly have hours of conversation about the Scotty Barnes, the Evan Mobleys, the Cade Cunninghams of the world, guys who were just awesome as rookies last year and showed really how, how outstanding that class was as a draft class to cover. But let's talk about the guys who are poised to take a huge leap forward that might have been a little bit more maybe mundane or par for the course as they were as rookies and were at least expecting to take a major step forward this year. And then in that second category, and we'll get to that in a little bit, those guys who maybe a little bit of trouble is brewing for them in terms of what they need to prove this year that it's kind of shit or get off the pot time. So, Ricky, anybody in particular you expect to have a major breakout? Yeah, you had a few down on the sheet that I agree with. I want to talk about those guys, but I'll just go two real quick. Okay. Bones Highland, obvious. People are talking about him as sixth man of the year this yeah. year. Wild stuff. Saw Bones light it up at the Combine. That was a, a great time. He was really fun as a rookie in Denver. Uh, just instant offense, microwave, bucket getter. 
you know, if Jordan Poole can get a $140 million contract, why can't Bones Highland, right? <laughs> so my biggest question with the Nuggets has always been, is Jamal Murray good enough to be the second best player on a title team? Because I feel very confident that Jokic is good enough to be the best player. But, like, Murray, like, he's good. But is he, like, really that guy? Yeah. I was a little lower on him in the draft, too. So maybe I'm, like, biased from that. Obviously, he lit it up in the bubble. But, like, I don't know. And so did T.J. Warren. You know, yeah. so did T.J. Warren, right, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, like, are they going to need to go to Bones for some big minutes? Murray coming off the injury. Bones, I think, like, Denver's second units have always been terrible, like, the last couple of years. Yeah. So I think Bones could sort of, like, captain those units. And, you know, I think we're doing a predictions post at SB Nation tomorrow. I have the Nuggets winning the most games in the NBA in the regular season. Okay. And I think Bones Highland's going to be a big part of that. Uh, the second I like guy it. I wanted to mention, how about Dayron Sharp? A real, a real sleeper on this one there we but go I feel like, so i don't even know if daron's gonna be in the rotation but what i know about the nets is that they got nick claxton is their only real center daron is a good in the preseason i don't know if he's just going against like fourth stringers or what but i always sort of liked him going back to his montverde days with moses moody who i could also name on this with cade with scotty barnes he was on that team and he's just a large man who knows his role. And that is yeah. to screen, to rebound, to roll, to dunk the ball. And I kind of feel like the Nets need some of that. Like, they yeah. kind of just need someone who's not like uh, like a jack-of-all-trades type or not like a mystery box. Like, you know what you're getting with Dayron Sharp? Yeah. And just given the construction of the roster, I think it's possible Dayron could have a pretty decent year. It's just like a sort of a rolling, rebounding big man. Yeah, no, I, I like those two picks. I think that this, again, the situation in Brooklyn kind of merits it. Like he showed some interesting things last year. I think he's a little bit better as a passer than I thought he was going to be. Uh, probably should have paid more attention to the high school film and, and time at Montverde. But uh, certainly, again, Brooklyn is going to need just a play finisher, somebody else to be a five other than Claxton because he's – there are some situations where he just doesn't seem like the best fit on the floor. And I'm a huge Claxton guy, uh, but I would love to see Sharp step up and, and, and be in that role. Um, Trey Murphy for New Orleans, man, what a preseason he's had. I mean, has this guy missed a shot in the last, like, four months? He looks outstanding. Unreal. I thought he was a little bit of a one-trick pony was in, Me too. when he was in the draft. But yeah. the thing is, like, if you're just good at it, a really good 3 and D guy, even as, like, we've moved into this place where, like, oh, you don't just want, like, a pure 3 and D guy. Real good 3 and D guys are still real good. Yeah. <laughs> like, they still, like, help the team win. Yeah. Especially when, you know, a team like New Orleans has some guys like Ingram and Zion who are going to be creating, like, you really just need a dude to space the floor, knock down a quick catch and shoot, and defend. So, can he do that? Probably. He looks like it. His shot looks really, really good. Yeah. yeah, Faster than I remember, too. Um, I think that he had, I don't want to call it hitchy, but it just he would bend the ball a little bit lower before his release, and it was so high that it took just a little bit more time to move the ball throughout his, his mechanics. He's getting that thing off quickly now. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really sold on Trey Murphy, just having a really steady, reliable season where it's going to be about his efficiency, not necessarily his overall raw numbers that have a breakout for him. 
Um, you know, if there's one team, Ricky, that I think consistently makes guys better over the course of being there for the first four seasons of their career, it's kind of the Memphis Grizzlies right now. That whatever is in the water in their developmental system that they're they're giving to these guys really helps them turn in a fantastic season once they get a year or so under their belt. And that's why I'm really excited for Zaire Williams, a guy I was higher on than most coming into the the draft process just because I looked at all of the excuses, so to speak, around the situation that he was in at Stanford, the COVID year, the lack of weightlifting, some stuff going on in his family, and just really believed that his overall talent would show through with patience. In no way did I expect him to have as many meaningful minutes and starting games for you know a top two seed in the Western Conference as he did as a rookie. So I think that he's already proven the baseline is, is higher than some people thought it would be from day one. But if the Grizzlies' developmental system continues to get a hold of him, he becomes a much more consistent three-point shooter. He shows more with the ball in his hands. And at Summer League, Memphis was committed to letting him play more of that point guard role to explore some of those opportunities, get some film, figure out what they can work with him on to improve. I, I just think that there's, there's a really high ceiling for a guy like Zaire to take another step forward this year. Yeah, and like that's what Memphis wanted, right? It was just like a big wing who could make shots. It was the one piece they didn't really have on the roster. And I don't know if they had Zaire Williams in mind when they traded up in the draft so early in that, like, Steven Adams, Jonas Valanciunas swap. Yep. I think they wanted Franz or they wanted Giddy. Yep. And then when they were both gone at Zaire, it's like, eh, why not? Like, this is the yep. type of player we want. We don't know if we're going to get a chance at him. And with Morant being so young, you can sort of, like, bring them along together, even if Zaire Williams ultimately becomes a second contract guy, which like is something that we don't talk about in the NBA really, because there's so much pressure to produce right away. Like you just see like Nas little just signed, I think for like a $28 million yeah. four year extension. That's like such a rare extension. Yeah, in the NBA yeah. Because it's like, I mean, it, yeah, you, you could see the incentive to sign it on both ends, but like Nas little hypothetically, could be the most underrated, you know, like under one of the more underpaid players if he just like plays pretty well, has a breakout year. But also, like, maybe he won't and he just locked in awesome financial security. So I, I sort of like view Zaire in a little bit of a similar place where I kind of think like he was better last year than I ever thought he would be. When I watched him at Stanford, I'm like, this guy's going to need a while yeah. before he's contributing meaningful minutes but he kind of contributed meaningful minutes as a rookie, which is wild. So like a lot of these guys, I think like where's his catch and shoot ball at is going to be really important for him. And then like, can he just withstand the physicality of defending at an NBA level? Like you would think if you're coaching against the Grizzlies and Zaire's on the floor, like, don't you think you got to put a target on his chest and just like try to go through him kind of, because he's not really as physical as a lot of nba wing defenders or forward defenders but man he's got a he's got an intriguing package of skills like you said memphis knows how to develop them so yeah i think he's a really interesting guy to watch in year two yeah and opportunity is something that he's proven to be able to have and, and if if he can maintain that moving forward even though the grizzlies have added a couple more wings to their rotation then that's going to bode well for him long term. Uh, speaking of opportunity, Ricky, 
who's going to score the damn ball in San Antonio? And and why does that mean Josh Primo has a really big year ahead in terms of what we expect from him developmentally? Yeah, I love it. Primo obviously was sort of considered the biggest reach in the 2021 draft when it happened. Uh, but things he had going for him, very young, yep. very athletic. Seemed like he could play with the ball in his hands a little bit, could shoot it a little bit. So I want to know, what are you excited about for Josh Primo in year two? Just in terms of like what you saw with from him as a rookie and like why do you think that like beyond just the fact that somebody needs to soak up yeah. the usage on the Spurs this year, like what makes him a better bet than let's say Blake Wesley or uh, Branham or just like yeah. Heldon, anyone else who could theoretically get the touches? Why yeah. Josh Primo? So my trust for Primo with the ball in his hands is much higher than it is for guys like Branham or Wesley. I think Wesley's too much of a wild card, and I just wasn't the biggest fan of Branham. I think he's uh, much more of a physicality-laden player than a quick first step, get into the lane, make quick decisions type of guy. So the NBA level, I tend to be more attracted to somebody like Primo to be a, a primary option, pun intended there, I guess, uh, to, to create for others. So I think – he will be the one younger guy, you know, obviously Trey Jones is, is a pick and roll maestro and that's going to be his role on any NBA team. But if there's somebody who has a high ceiling that needs to get those pick and roll type of reps in San Antonio, it's going to be primo. I like his size. I like the fact that he can score on all three levels. I don't want to call him a three level scorer because he just has proven it, but he's shown flashes of being able to do a little bit of everything. And I just think the way San Antonio developed him last year, keeping him down in that G League and, and saying, this is going to be your show to run. Let's try to explore you know, your, your depth and what you can do as a scorer, as a playmaker, just play through you the entire time. That added confidence is going to carry over to the, to the NBA level where he has that role. Like To me, it's very akin to something we do a lot on the high school level of, we get a really talented kid and we say, you know what? It might be better for you as a freshman to play JV and learn how to dominate because by the time you're a sophomore, now you've got those reps, that understanding under your chest, you can be that dominant force for the next three years at the varsity level. I think that we're going to see a similar trajectory here for Josh Primo. So, are you, are you a Primo guy? I, I don't remember where you were on Primo pre-draft. He just really rose up so quickly. I liked him at Bama. I was like, yeah. this guy's interesting. Uh, but I didn't really have a super solid take on him. To me, he's sort of like a mystery box guy. He's got the tools that you look for. But it's like, can he actually play and fit within a team structure? And like, when can he possibly contribute? Seemed like a two years away from being two years away type of guy to me. Yeah. But there's no better place to develop those types than in San Antonio. So... I think that's going to be, uh, you know, just like pretty interesting in general this year. Well, and I don't think the Spurs need slash want him to be this completely polished final project in year two. Like this is about exploring what you have with him and trying to figure out, can this be somebody that we give the reins to, or do we need another lead guard, so to speak? Not necessarily lead scorer. I don't think Josh Primo is all of a sudden going to be a, 25 points per game guy that leads an NBA franchise that's really good in scoring, but can he be kind of your, your main creator at the one type of spot and surround him with other great scorers? 
Yeah, he's uh, like a guy who could be anything, right? Like he yes. could also be a wing shooter. He could be like a three and D guy. He could be a creator. He could be like a secondary slasher type of guy. Like he just had he's like a ball of clay, and you can mold him into whatever you want to mold him into because he's so young and he has these physical gifts. So like you know who better to do it than Pop, right? right. So what an opportunity for a young player like Primo to step into a team that is prioritizing developing over winning. Like what? That doesn't happen that much in the NBA. There's only mm -hmm. a few teams every year you could say that about. And you get to learn that development from arguably the greatest coach of all time. So what a life. Yeah. What a primo spot to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Hilarious. I know. But Ricky, let, let's, uh, let's pivot here to some of those guys that, this is a crucial year for, right? We're, we're already seeing some warning signs coming up, whether it's on court, off court, rotationally, just the fit of the, the team that they're in not being the, the perfect situation, uh, maybe causing us to even doubt some of our pre-draft evaluations and say, you know what, it's looking pretty likely that we missed on a guy like this. There's one that stands out, and I know you brought his name up and, and put him in the document we've been working off of here. James Booknight, um, some off-court stuff going on there that has been reported just over the last 24 hours out in Charlotte, which the Hornets are a mess right now in a lot of different ways. But Booknight, if you put some of this aside for a moment, which is hard to do, he hasn't looked very confident, very effective in his moments on the court. You're pretty worried about him? Yeah, I wasn't super high on him pre-draft. So part of this is like confirmation bias, I think. But like he just didn't he didn't really do much as a rookie. And there should be a huge opportunity in Charlotte this year, too. Seems like Charlotte's probably gonna be in the Wembenyama mix. Uh and it's like, what is Book Knight like gonna do with that opportunity at all? Like I just he seems like he's had no positive momentum going for him yeah. in his NBA career. And he should be someone who, like on a bad team, could put up big numbers. Because his bread and butter was just scoring the basketball, especially like being able to fly around the court and like sort of bending a defense with his off-ball movement. I thought that was kind of his signature skill. But, you know, you got to piece it together at a certain point. And because I use my confirmation bias to say Book Knight is someone who I wasn't super high on before. All right, I'll go with two guys who I was super high on who don't look very good. Sure. First of all, Sharif Cooper. I mean, oh, my God. Yeah. That just does not seem like a good situation whatsoever. Yeah. Already on a second team. Cavs, right? Ca Cavs, and I think they – did they wave and, and try to send him to their, their G League team already? But, like, again, like, he was on the Hawks originally, and I'm like, I don't like this, where he's, like, with a small guard. Yeah. And now it's, like, sort of the same thing with Garland and Mitchell, who are both small. But Sharif – I hope it happens for you, buddy, because I love watching you play ball. Yeah. But it doesn't look good right now. Yeah. Yeah. I had him as, I think, a top 10 prospect. Woof. No wonder I'm a blogger and not an NBA fan. I, I had him 14th, so I'm not, I'm not too far behind you there. And, and I think it just goes to underscore how the game is changing a little bit positionally and what the margin for error is for a lot of these smaller guards, you know, following up on a conversation we brought up a little bit earlier in the podcast. He also did have some really good G League games last year. Yeah, he did. So, like, maybe, like, let's just see Sharif Cook. Like, let Sharif Cook. If one of these tanking teams are going to tank and be worthless, you owe it to me. <laughs> 
to let Sharif Cooper have the ball in his hands. Like, if you're the Jazz, what's stopping you? Oh, how many guys are the Utah? Like, I can't wait to watch the wrestling match that happens on an inbound pass after they get scored on inevitably because they have no rim protection. Like, it's going to be Colin Sexton, Jordan Clarkson, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Taylor Horton Tucker, like, just playing a, a wrestling match to see who gets to bring the ball up, dribble it 15 times before they chuck one up. That's well, a should be weird situation. So, <laughs> Sharif Cooper in Salt Lake City just seems like a funny situation in general. Yeah. And I'm sure, like, you know, Charlotte, they'll probably shut down LaMelo at some point with an injury. Give me Sharif. I just want Sharif in my life, man. Just yeah. give him a chance. And then yeah. Jaden Springer, again, some good G League games. But, like, you look at the Sixers, and it's like, where is Jaden Springer getting a chance here? Yeah. Like, Melton is kind of like an actualized Jaden Springer. Yeah. And they add him, and he's just ready to, like, step into the rotation, play playoff minutes right away. So. How's Jaden Springer factoring into this? Especially yeah. when he can't really shoot. So just a little bit tentative on both those. And did I have someone else? Oh, yeah, th those were the three. Him, Hook Knight, Cooper. So, yeah, uh, plenty of time for those guys. But, like, man, as a player, like, if you don't show some serious promise in your first two years, the clock starts ticking fast because there's always more guys coming up behind you, even if you're only – I think Kobe White right now is like 22 or something yeah. or 23. And it's like, man, he's had three years. And he hasn't really proven that he can be a dependable piece to a winning team. So it goes quick, man, even if you're I, young. I think that's the huge takeaway I'm finding of you know, the increasing level of talent in a lot of these draft classes and in younger guys being more ready to come in and, and maybe do something from year one is that it just puts pressure on everybody above them who's been drafted still on a rookie contract to produce or you move to the back of the line a little bit faster than you normally or, or, or have in the last several years. Um, and, and I think that that might have one of my guys who I was super high on pre-draft kind of caught in the weeds there, Usman Garuba in Houston and just weird positional fits with how they've drafted and accumulated talent. Like they drafted Garuba and Alperin Shengun in the same year yet never played them together. And that's really strange when you combine it with the idea that they went out there and they got Jabari Smith this year. They got Tari Eason. They've got a couple toolsy young, like wing forward types who are more defensive minded slashers, non-floor spacers. Where does Garuba fit into all of this in Houston? And I'm running out of ways to see, you know, how he carves out a role for himself on a team where spacing is going to be so vital around Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. Yeah, well, they need Wembenyama, and he's a great fit next to Wembenyama, right? Yeah. At the floor, yeah. like he fits better than some of those other guys do there, yeah. like Shengun. Yeah, I mean, again, just like sort of an oddball fit. Like you yeah. could see him, you could see the role where he could be a good NBA player if he's like a short role playmaker. Yep. If he's got like a rim protector who can shoot threes next to him at center, like a Miles Turner type. Yep. And he can like do some of the dirty work, but it's hard to find those situations. And then even if you get in that situation, it's hard to get the opportunity. And yeah, is a, is like the common thread with all these guys that they're not great catch and shoot guys. Like if you Might can catch be. and shoot, it's just sort of easier to get on the floor. Yeah. Off-ball scalability, yep. 
Yeah. If you can't, it's like, all right, well, we have another guy who can't shoot. It's DeMar DeRozan, and he's amazing. And he puts up like 28 a game super efficiently. So he's the one guy who's not going to shoot, and everyone else has to shoot around him. It's like these are the sort of uh, just questions you find yourself in in the modern game. Yeah, and it's funny. Like I knew that going in with Garuba, that shooting was not going to be his strength and that he's never going to be a core foundational piece in the offensive end. I just thought his defense was so above and beyond ready to make an impact in an area that he can hang his hat on and be a specialty role player. Yeah. But then Houston hasn't carved out space built around any of that to make it happen. I think that he's going to be a prime second contract type of guy where when a team understands who he is a little bit more, signs him and plugs him into this specific role because they have the infrastructure to make that work. That's where his game pops. But is he, how long is he going to stay in Houston and kind of, I don't want to say rot, but um, you know, be sitting behind everybody else who comes in that's younger, that fits a little bit better with their core until those days come. He could be interesting next to Jabari. Can we go some Jabari at the five, Garuba at the four lineups? Like, I love it. I love it. Yep. That's cool, right? Let's try that, Houston. Steven Silas, there's a free tip for you. There it is. Well, Ricky, anytime we get together, I have a great time. So I want to thank you so much for for being a part of this conversation here on the last night without basketball that we'll have for a long, long period of time. So, Ricky, before we get you out of here, let the people know where can they find you, what do you have going on with SB Nation and, and all of the works that you have your hand in. Yeah, you can find all my work at SBNation.com editing, writing, doing everything over there. So visit espionation.com. You'll see my name on the page. You'll see uh, some of the some of the people on staff that we have now. JP Acosta, great young football writer. Mark Schofield, great football writer. We got James Detour. Uh, all the all the network people there too. So just lots of stuff going on at espionation.com. Publishing a lot more than we were the last couple of years. So Go check it out if you're uh, if you're into sports coverage of all sorts. And and read Ricky's stuff on the NBA, on the NBA draft. He puts out fantastic, fantastic articles whenever he gets the opportunity to write when he's not hiring and editing and doing all the great behind-the-scenes work that he does there. So thank you all for joining us here on the Boxing One Podcast. 50 episodes in the book now. Owe it all to all of you who have kept us uh, supported here on our Substack, on our YouTube page. Throw us a like, throw us a rating, however you want to do that. But uh, thanks for all your support, everybody, and we will see you next week.